Osiris. Hey guys, it's Dave and Brian. Hey now. Before we get started here with the episode, we wanted to tell you about what's happening with our Osiris Podcast Network as we are uh, deep in the midst of Fish's Summer Tour. So if you guys haven't checked it out, the Helping Friendly Podcast, our podcast brethren, has been putting out some quick hits after each show in the tour thus far. We definitely encourage you guys to check out Night 1 with RJ, Night 2 with Brad, Night 3 at the Gorge, uh, interview with Justin from the Funyun, really good interview. Gorge Night 2 with Jeff, who can be found at under Mr. Minor D. Uh, and Gorge Night 3 with Jonathan talking about a fantastic show at the Gorge. In addition, we'd also encourage you to check out the Osiris Live Couch Report, brought to you by Relics Magazine. This is, um, I know it's been RJ, Tom Marshall. They did them during Gorge shows. There's a pre-show, set break, and post-show. Hashtag is couch report one word. I know that they're going to be trying to do this for um, all the fish shows that have webcasts. I think they had to adjust the camera angle a bit. Saw some really pasty dude legs last time. They say they're working on it and they're actually pretty interesting and well done. So we'd encourage that. Check those out. Absolutely. And we'll link uh, the, the one from the gorge in our show notes as well as on Twitter once this episode goes live. And finally, we want to remind you guys to go along, go ahead and play uh, the Lure Social Fish Summer Setlist game. <clears throat> We're playing here at Beyond the Pond. The guys over at HF Potter playing. We're watching all the results come in. It's tons of fun. Pick your songs. Play along for each show. It's a really uh, great experience for, uh, for for the fish for the fish community. And with there being no repeats as of recording today, it makes it that much more interesting. Playing live fantasy fish set list is way more fun than fantasy baseball if you are a Mets fan like I am. <laughs> on that note, let's get to the pond. Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 40. Wow, this is 40 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which generally Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands that we think that they might enjoy. These are usually non jam bands. We're here to expand your mind because we love Fish. We are Fish fans especially when they're on summer tour. Sometimes fish fans get a bit myopic. All they want to listen to is fish. They forget that there's other bands out there. 
This makes them somewhat dull. And frankly, we don't like dull people. We're here to do something about it. Absolutely. And while we are just deep in the midst of summer tour here, re-listening to shows, re-listening to jams, talking about moments that we absolutely loved from the show before versus moments that we might not have liked that much, we are also trying to uh, continue to stay uh, up on our Beyond the Pond uh, assignments of listening to as much music out there and getting as much of a diverse taste as possible. And that's what we're here for with you guys. Um, so this episode, episode 40, we are going to be covering the first five shows of the summer 2018 tour. So Tahoe and the Gorge. And we're going to be focusing on the Chalk Dust Torture that was played on July 20th, 2018 on the first night of the Gorge. Pretty unanimous pick for a jam to cover, I would say. Some of the themes that we're going to weave in and out of this episode include D major road trips, Southern Glory, and Fish 2018, walking the fine line between 2017 continuation and transitional. And on that note, let us get to the fish. Why are we talking about the Chalk Dust Torture from July 20th, 2018? Before we talk about it, of note, this being our 40th episode, we wanted to uh, honor a song and a jam that really uh, speaks to this podcast in a heavy way. If you remember, if you've been with us through from the beginning, the very first episode we ever recorded, episode 001, back in March of 2017, we talked about the Chalk Dust Torture from Camden, New Jersey, July 10th, 1999. We hadn't talked about Chalk Dust since then. And so we felt for our 40th episode, it was really important to uh, honor that. It just so happened as well that Fish played a phenomenal 24-minute Chalk Dust Torture to open up the second set of their July 20th show at the Gorge Amphitheater. So I would say until set two on July 22nd, which happened the night before we're recording this, this Choctus was easily the best and most connected jam of summer. I still would say that it's the most explosive and joyous, and it felt like a true continuation of everything great that the band has done since Dick's 2012. It was relentless, it didn't give up when it could have hopped to another song, and every single section built on the last, ultimately peaking with an Almonds-esque sunny blue sky bliss jam, not unlike the Redding Down Disease. Early on in the jam... Trey toys with his effects a ton and really sounds like he's been listening to the kind of DJ work of some of BTP faves, Owen Tricks Point Never, and Nicholas Jarma specifically. And while I think, based on our last episode's wish list for Summer Tour, we would be the last podcast you'd expect to feature a D major bliss jam in our first episode on the 2018 Summer Tour, here you and here we are. 
And much of the reason for this is that this is a really fantastic example of the band's jamming in that style without feeling in any way like it's a crutch. Yeah, certainly on my wish list in the last episode was less reliance on big, bright jamming in major keys, particularly in D major. However, the D major portion, this Choctaw's Torture felt earned. I mean, it wasn't rushed, it wasn't abrupt, and it didn't feel like a crutch so much as just a natural progression from what was happening before in the jam. It was uh, very patient, and whereas, I don't know, for some examples, what comes to mind was like the Down With Disease that Fish played on uh, 12-30-2017. That's got a big G major portion that, while fun, to me just seems like completely tacked on out of nowhere. Whereas in this one, you can clearly follow the band from point A to point B. And when it came, it made perfect sense. And it was completely glorious. As far as Choctaw's Tortures go, this is sort of similar in style to... Um, of course, the legendary one we just spoke about from July 10, 1999. That was our first episode. The Camden Shock Dust. Uh, July 1st, 2016. That was an early highlight of uh, the summer 2016 tour from SPAC. I recall that one was over 20 minutes. I admittedly haven't listened to it in a long time. Also, we're thinking about July 28th, 2017. That was, was uh, Double Chocolate Night from Baker's Dozen that has a gorgeous, gorgeous Harry Hood style peak. And of course, December 29th, 2017, where they do lots of quotes of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Homeward Bound and ride the A major train to Bliss City. And one of the great things about this jam is beyond the D major bliss aspect of it, that peak that they go into, uh, the last four minutes of the jam are really a pleading argument for jamming post peak the band finds a demented groove and just rides it out segueing perfectly into my friend my friend this is absolute fish brilliance and this to me like if there's anything the band could do on a consistent basis just to make their shows their jams as interesting and as re-listenable as possible it's when they come down from a peak just keep playing for like four or five minutes because there's always something fascinating that comes up in that yeah, here kind of the post-peak jamming had lots of um, the tremolo wah-wah that Trey's really become accustomed to lately. Kind of often sounding like he's trying to open up wormholes like on um, the version of Light from December 30 of 2016 especially. And then normally if you see My Friend, My Friend is the second song in the second set, you think, huh? <laughs> but it worked. It worked very well. Totally. Set up the rest of the set. All right, so taking a step back here from the Choctaw's Torture. So just of note, we are recording this the night after the Gorge run concluded. Uh, this is being released right after the Bill Graham run concludes. We will actually cover Bill Graham in our next episode, along with the L.A. shows and the Austin shows. Um, so we're five shows into the tour right now. We've had some really, really good highs. We've also had some moments of kind of... Huh, where's the band going right now? Um, it's been a little uneven, especially considering what we saw last year in 2017. We're going to go show by show right now just to kind of give you guys our thoughts. Um, I think overall, Dave, you'd agree. I, I think there's been more successes and more positive about this tour than there have been negatives or challenges at this point. I'm cautiously optimistic. I've certainly seen enough things that I have 
liked a lot. I know Fish has had, whether or not it's really fair, Fish kind of has the, um, I guess you could call it, the like even year problem where, right, you know, unlike the San Francisco Giants that used to win the World Series in even years, um, when Fish does even years like 2014, 2016, 1996, 1998, they often seem as sort of a little bit of a facsimile of the year that's come before, and they're kind of trying to find their way. But I think there's been enough good in the five shows so far to certainly give me some hope, lots of hope going forward. Certainly one set or two that we will get to that made me kind of give me pause. Totally. And I would say I've definitely gotten a sense of this being somewhat of a transition. I mean, you can't, you couldn't expect them to come on tour and just do the Baker's Dozen again in a bunch of different venues. That wouldn't make sense. The band is all about evolution and pushing forward. And a lot of times evolution comes with periods of somewhat stagnation or kind of periods of confusion where they don't totally know what to do. And I think that we've heard that a bit. I don't think that it's necessarily been a bad thing. Um, and I would agree there have been some really big moments and we'll get to this. But I, I, in 2014 and 2016, I didn't hear a show like 722, five shows into the tour. So that gives me a ton of hope. Um, so kind of jumping into it. So first night on tour, Tahoe. But he was excited for them to be back. First time they were back there from uh, since the Tahoe Tweezer back in 2013. Um, this was a really unique, kind of interesting and confounding opener. It was received in a really strange way throughout the fan base. Noticeably sloppy and featured a non-traditional tour opening set list, which reminded me in a lot of ways to the tour opener from Chicago last year, which in hindsight, that really like led to some great things on the tour because that really set the table for the band playing a ton of rarities and playing songs kind of in you know different placements than you were to expect um throughout the show trey was clearly messing with his guitar tech which provided the sound more akin to 2.0 than what we're used to and we would encourage you guys to go ahead and follow trey's guitar rig on twitter at trey's guitar rig for some really excellent insights into Trey's experimentations throughout the first week of this tour. Yeah, definitely the MoMA dance and the ghost was clearly the highlight of uh, the first set and the first show. And the big set two opening No Man and No Man's Land really saw Trey do lots of experiments with effects and the sonic wall of sound. I mean, it really wasn't so much a song as it was a platform for Trey experimenting with his rig, which your mileage may vary on such things. I know I think the more recent thing is he's been playing his guitar through a Leslie speaker, giving it a really, really interest, really interesting underwater sound, which for now sounds more cool than actually useful, I think. And also, uh, this show is notable for probably the shortest version of Slave to the Traffic Light they've ever played because the band literally forgot to play the harmonics portion of the song. I think uh, from some eyewitnesses, this was, I think, more like Fishman screwed it up, but then Trey started singing it, and if Trey hadn't started singing it, they would have screwed it up. I don't know. I noticed it right away on um, on the web, on uh, the stream. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and um, to kind of top the night off, Soul Planet 
was probably the most interesting jam of the night, which go figure. And I've listened back to it a couple of times since then. I think it's one of the better jams the whole tour. Um, our former guest, our good friend Ben Greenfield, and I got into it on Twitter. Ben Greenfield's um, at Guy Forge, at Guy Forge OPT. Um, I said, if Soul Planet jams, I'm okay with that. And he said, isn't this similar to uh, Never Trump Republicans voting for Trump after he got the nomination? Make of that what you want. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Soul Planet's a fun song. It's fun. I mean, I, I think Soul Planet would be improved if Trey just threw out the lyrics and just kind of made up the lyrics in the fly based upon what he happened to do on that day. <laughs> like, got up and had breakfast on the Soul Planet, drank my coffee on the Soul Planet, proceeded to take a shit on the Soul Planet. So... I think kind of overall our takeaway from this show, I, I personally, I enjoyed this tour opener. I will be totally honest. Yeah. I, I walked okay. away from this having a really good sense. I said on Twitter, and I would say it again, I think that this was the best tour opener the band has played since 2012. Um, now, granted, Fish doesn't really have a penchant for playing excellent tour openers, at least especially in 3.0. But I definitely thought this was a strong statement for the band from a jamming standpoint. Moma Dance and Ghost were legitimately excellent jams. They would have held up in 2017. Um, and I would say, and I think that you and I are in agreement with this, there's a little bit too much emphasis that's been put on the perceived sloppiness of this show. It's a tour opener. The, you should give them the benefit of the doubt. They're super busy guys. They're getting back together after six months. They've probably chatted, rehearsed a little bit. Um, but, you know... It's not like this is 1995 Dead Level or, God forbid, Vegas 2004. Yeah, this isn't like the ACDC bag of Vegas 2004. No, no, no. I'm talking Giant Stadium 95 for the dead. So put your pitchforks away, people. What about the second night of Tahoe? Well, the second night is interesting because it's kind of night and day to night, to, uh, night one. Much tighter, much more energetic. And what it made up for in tightness, it really lacked in experimentation. I think a lot of people walked away from this show being like, okay, the band is tight. The band's ready to play, uh, you know, do a full tour. They're able to, you know, play their songs in full. But what you sacrifice from that is kind of that looseness and that jamming that you got, you know, on the moment dance and the ghost from night one, the soul planet from night one. Uh, I think everything's right. That had a really solid jam and, Probably was the best jam that the song has produced thus far. Really good moment midway through set one. Yeah, that was the highlight of the set for me. That and uh, I don't like the song Ocelot. I'll tell anybody who asks. I think it's the really poor man sugary. But that had a surprisingly good dark jam on the second half of it. And if it means I can use the bathroom for the first five minutes of Ocelot and then get back for an awesome jam the second half... I'm all for that. Nice little, yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a yeah, huge Ocelot fan, but uh, <laughs> I love. I'm not even an apologist. I fucking love that song. Um, I, I, that song comes on when it's like the sunset towards the end of set one. I'm outdoors. It's one of my favorite things for fish. Um, but in in set two, we had Blaze On right into I Always Wanted It This Way. 
It's kind of a fantastic little micro jam segment that showcased the band's creativity with their newest material, which I think everybody's super excited about. Yeah, that was the Blazon was really close to being awesome. We'll settle for it simply being very good. I think it helped in the last three minutes. It sounds like Fishbin kind of kicks the jam into double time. Although for some odd reason, the mixes in the first two Tahoe shows had um, Page and Fishman's kick drum especially were very strange and muted. Um, for my years, I think that has been, uh, the mix has been corrected a little bit towards the end of the Gorge run, but it was annoying, the flatness of the mixes in Tahoe. Also, mentioned the first set closed with a nice little funky disco-fied bathtub gin which won't go down as anybody's favorite but still pretty damn good yeah it was fun it was fun i mean i think tahoe too um it's the kind of show that you want to uh you know pound double ipas to with some friends in your backyard it's the kind of show that you could have friends over who are big fish fans as well as friends who don't really care that much about fish you could throw it on the background everybody's happy just good music kind of love shows like that um you know, not the type of shows that I'm going to listen back to kind of in depth, but you know, it's a, it's, it's a good fish summertime show. I, I, I enjoyed it and I think it um, helped to kind of level things out as uh, we move to the gorge. I enjoyed it being the second night of the tour. If it was the second to last night of the tour. I would not have enjoyed it. I would agree with that whole, I, I think that, and that's, you know, that's the challenge with where we're at right now in the tour is we, we don't totally know the direction things are going. And, um, uh, I think that we have seen a couple different options for where this tour could go right now. I certainly wouldn't want it to go in the direction of Tahoe Night 2. That would strike me as too much 2010 to 2012 era fish. Um, but I think that it's important for them to play those shows to kind of level things out, set some foundation, and move forward. And uh, when they did move forward, they moved into the Gorge, the first ever three-night run at the Gorge. Um, I have been to the Gorge once. I went in 2011, witnessed the best rock and roll I've ever seen. Um, and uh, I was going to go this year. I had tickets to the three-night run. I was going to go this year. And, uh, you know, life, family, commitments kind of get in the way. I would have had to have taken basically a week off of work. And just couldn't make it happen this year, especially once they announced the Vegas Halloween shows. Um, I definitely regret missing it after last night's show, although um, with some of the reports that kind of came out of the Gorge, I, uh, I feel somewhat okay having a little bit of a distance to it. But um, Gorge Night 1, jumping in, this was this past Friday, July 20th. Um, at the time, I thought this was the best show of the tour thus far. Great song selection, really great jams, solid flow throughout. I mean, you couldn't really argue with this as a Friday night uh, show to kick off a three-night run. Um, Set Your Soul Free, I thought was a solid debut opener with a really nice jam attached to it. It was good to see them kind of take that a little bit further. What were your thoughts on that? That song has some potential. It sounds a lot to me like a Tedeschi Trucks Band song because it has the word soul in it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can see that. has that Susan Tedeschi high-quality wedding band feel. <laughs> it's it's funny. It's 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 in that category with like uh, my my problem right there. Can't always listen. I think is what it was called. Um, I would put Ocelot Blaze on in there. It, it strikes me as songs that. Trey is trying to write for 
a updated version of the last waltz and falling ever so slightly short. Yeah. Like I said, uh, lots of potential. Lots. Um, Wolfman, some great staccato jamming there. Uh, Roguet was gorgeous as usual. If you, uh, I saw them play that at Gorge the same night they played that fantastic rock and roll. It was right as the sun was going down. They stretched it into an 11-minute jam that went type 2 for about 3 or 4 minutes. Um, it's just a fantastic song in that type of setting. Um, simple in all caps was the aha moment of the whole tour I thought I feel like that was when people everyone just settled in and was like okay they're going to keep jamming in the first set this is a good thing yeah just to what you're saying it seems like whenever Simple shows up now it's never less than like 13-14 minutes that's become a surefire jam vehicle I can't really recall I mean you have to go back to 2016 to see a time when Simple showed up and it wasn't long, epic, and good. And that's what they have here, and good for them. I know this simple is... Uh, and they're playing it in really weird... They're playing it in really weird placements. I mean, they open uh, shows with it. I saw them open it, open Dicks with it last year, um, and it jammed as well midway through the first set here. I mean, they're just really placing it in moments where... Um, it's unexpected, and then they jam it, and that just adds a good amount to to that overall show. Trey loves jamming in F major. He does. Um, Yamar, great cactus solo, and Sand was a uh, killer closing combo to set two or set one, excuse me. Uh, Choctaw's torture. You know how we feel about this. That's why we're covering it tonight. Um, Light was a really phenomenal fourth quarter jam. Very similar to my ears to the uh, 7:30 2017 drown from Jimmy's night. Even if it was ripcorded when it was about to go into another section, really liked that jam and love hearing that kind of fourth quarter jamming where you know you think that they're going to play just a rock song here and they go into a 15 minute jam. It's just really really fantastic stuff. And then you got your tube in the encore slot. Always a good thing. Slightly longer than a standard version. A little. Um, Micro jam with a lot of uh, really excellent tremolo and then Golgi. Not the tightest version of Golgi, but after an excellent set like that, no one is going to be complaining about a two Golgi encore. So, certainly lots of really, really, really excellent stuff in Gorge Night One. Absolutely. Um, and then Saturday, July 21st, this show's kind of been overshadowed, I would say, a lot by uh, the reports that have come out of the Gorge of. Um, neo-Nazis who it sounds like they might have been associated with some um, uh, nitrous tank operators um, doesn't really nobody really knows where they came from um, but they were attacking uh, what sounds like black fans who were at the show um, we actually got reports today of one of them who is still in the hospital um, with some pretty significant uh, medical bills uh, after suffering a pretty traumatic head injury. Um, uh, we're going to send around the link for his uh, GoFundMe. Um, we would encourage anyone who listens to this, anyone who listens to Fish, to you know give what you can. Um, really awful scene. Um, cannot really imagine these people who are attacking Fish fans being actual Fish fans. And it um, just feels really unacceptable. No. These people aren't Fish fans. These are just fucking assholes that went there to do completely awful things. I know as of recording, I know that 
I know that the band hasn't released a statement on what happened. I mean, I think that they should address it at some point, certainly work with the local authorities and the venue to ensure that this type of behavior and this type of person is kept as far away from the scene as possible. I think they're probably waiting to just gather as much information from the authorities as they can. But one would think that they should want to say something. Yeah. To the extent that if they do happen to be linked to nitrous, I mean, if you don't want the nitrous mafia to come to your shows, then maybe don't partake in nitrous. I know, you know, that sounds easy enough to do, but it seems like no matter how much people complain about nitrous in the presence of these knuckleheads that just sprout up after the shows, like toadstools after a storm, you still see fish fans falling over themselves left and right to get the balloons. Yeah. And I think it's kind of sad. And when people say, well, look, you know, people are doing all kinds of drugs at shows. I think that's a bit of a false equivalency. I would agree with that. Yeah. They're not going to be there if nobody's buying balloons. So, um, you know, pretty awful stuff to hear about. Not at all the conversation any of us wanted to have during the first three night run at the gorge, you know, fishes, uh, I think for a lot of us, uh, some semblance of escapism. And I think that's a good thing. I think we all need that. Um, and to have this sort of stuff infiltrate it where it just really doesn't have much origins beyond what we perceive to be this kind of really nasty drug uh, uh, overtake of the scene in some cases uh, is just really sad. So um, hopefully it's an isolated incident. I would like to see the band address it. Um, if, there's, if there's any takeaways, be safe, be alert and... Yeah, and take care of each other. I mean, I saw some really great reports from fish fans, from you know, really reliable people, both on Twitter. I heard about a lot on Facebook. Um, it seemed like people jumped on this pretty quickly and started getting the word out. So, um, yeah, um, jumping into the music. So this Saturday night at the Gorge, um, set one of this show is filled with a ton of energy and. Um, I think at the time, a lot of us would say this was one of the best sets of the summer thus far. It was a great song selection. Looks really good on paper, and it's a really fun show, fun set to listen to. Weekapog was really, uh, really well played. Um, Party Time, Punch in the Eye. That was uh, 10, 26, 13. Was that the last time that they opened up with those two songs? Yeah, it was your night too. Yeah, what a great show that was. Um really well played here um but the show the set kind of lacked the yams uh good songs but no yams no yams though like you said weka pog is well played i mean it's kind of hard to complain about a mike's hydrogen weka pog in the middle of the set um good openers like you said you know just a good version of divided sky just very good fish songs Played very well. Nothing to blow your sir. Nothing to like, knock your socks off. But if right. you look at it on paper, it sounds good in the car. Uh, the song "Infinite," a new Mike song, uh, was debuted. The lyrics are: uh, Jason Sudeikis in uh, one of the lyrics. I don't really know. Um, Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> but uh, musically, it kind of reminds me of Mercury, and it feels like the kind of song that could jam really big if only they took Mike songs for a walk. Um, 
really hope to hear that played in the second set. It sounds like it could get really dark. I, I liked the music in that song. Speak for yourself. Keep it in the first set. <laughs> um, speaking of set two, so set two of the show felt like something out of 2010 to 2012 fish. Zero jams pushing beyond the boundaries of their song. Lots of, I would say, ill-timed ballads. Caspian, Velvet Sea, um, Rise Up. It's just kind of not what you're looking for when you're thinking of a Saturday night at the Gorge. Um, what did you think of this set? Well, this show, as I was watching on the East Coast, it was very, very late. So I think they started up the set a little before 1 o'clock, and I heard Tweezer. The tweezer was about 14 minutes, but kind of through the tweezer, how it proceeded. And then when it went in the golden age, I kind of, after listening three minutes of golden age, I thought to myself, okay, I've kind of got an idea of where this set is going, where they're at, just based on that alone. I went to sleep. And then when I kind of woke up and saw the set list and listened back, I realized I made a decent decision. This tweezer, it had some legitimate tray shreddage towards the end, but I don't think it ever leaves uh, the key of Tweezer. It really doesn't really do a heck of a lot. There should be better ones played in 2018. Granted, Golden Age kind of did destroy. It had lots of funk and clavinet akin to 1997 Fish, but um, Piper was all right. Really, this is the kind of set that should be largely forgotten by Tour's end. Yeah. And if it's not, then we're in trouble. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the 2016 conundrum. Um, people still talk about the Wrigley sets uh, when they talk about 2016, and they shouldn't, and that's a problem. <laughs> um, you know, this this sort of set, you think back to some of the kind of duds, the few and far between duds of 2017. How many people talk about them? Because there's a lot of really amazing sets to talk about. So I kind of feel that way about this as well. This was just a solid kind of no-nonsense show. Um, similar in some ways, I would say, to Tahoe Night 2. Albeit they tried to jam a little bit more, I would say, at Tahoe 2. This just kind of felt like weird song placements um, that, that lost flow and kind of overall just kind of didn't – the whole show just didn't really come together for me. Um, but the last night that we're going to speak about – July 22nd, 2018, the first ever third night at the Gorge. This show was everything that I'm looking for from a fish show. It, they could not have... This was a Sunday show. It was a true Sunday show in the set list, in the music. They could not have taken the kind of music I want to hear in the second set and played it any better. That was one of my favorite shows I've heard in the entire 3.0 era. I absolutely loved it. I listened to it back that, uh, today. Just so fantastic. What are your thoughts on this? I listened to the second set at work today and I was extremely impressed. I mean, it looks good on paper and the reality is equally good, if not better. They do some extremely interesting, fun things with the twist. Yeah. I mean, the twist is all sorts of really excellent page, um, like Wurlitzer Fender Road style keyboard playing. But somehow they almost throw like an ambient jam tweeze of Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker into the middle of it. No, it's so bizarre. Like I heard it and I said, wait, they just do that? That's awesome. 
yeah, I mean, the twist was really, really endlessly inventive. Like, Cross-Eyed goes from, like, the usual rock glory of Cross-Eyed into a very ambient, peaceful jam that was clearly intentional and extremely well done. And then for the twist, it goes into a waves. I mean, everything in the set was well-paced and deliberate and done with a sense of purpose and theme. And then the split open and melt that closes it out is just fucking bonkers. I mean, it's, at least it's probably even wackier than the one from the Baker's Dozen, which was one of the best at 3.0. So yeah, it's really one of the more masterful sets you're going to find early on in the tour. And I admittedly haven't listened to much of set one yet because I wasn't able to get this on my phone until late afternoon. Except I did, uh, I like Wombat a lot. I did listen to that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of set one, I think Curtain With Opener was an excellent call by the band. It really seemed to ease the tones of many in the community. If you were on Twitter in the hours leading up to the show, there were definitely a lot of like, uh, kind of, you know, rightly so, I think some angry people about what was going on and what, you know, we had or hadn't heard from the band at that point in time. And the Curtain With just did a really nice job of kind of easing everyone, setting the tone from a musical standpoint, and really proved to be an incredibly powerful opener, as always. The, the last three performances of it, Mexico 2017, Jimmy's Night, and tonight, or uh, 722, open the show. And, and I said on Twitter, and I, I think it's just the way I've always viewed the song as a show opener. It feels like you're going to the theater rather than you're going to a rock show. And I love that aspect of it. Um, you had the birds followed by birds of a feather. Everybody laughed. Uh, a really interesting take on stealing time. And that says a lot about how we feel about stealing time. <laughs> um, Reba. They don't play it fast enough. No. And, and that version, I, I think was the most interesting version aside from August 2nd, 2013. Um, Almost thought, I thought for a second that, holy shit, this is going to be the first set jam of the show. Like, it just felt like it was pushing there. And then it didn't. And um, probably never will. I just think that that, uh, that ship has sailed for, for stealing time. Um, Rebut Sunset, uh, always beautiful, always, always fantastic. Um, Wombat had a phenomenal first set jam. That's where that came. And then, yeah, like you said, Dave, the second set, I thought it was perfection. Uh, it was very thematic times it sounded like a whisper reminded me a lot of one of our favorite records and then nothing turns itself inside out by yola tango um and the split up and melt um really reminded me of the version from spack in 2013 that's just kind of a demented take on the song you know you wondered constantly are they gonna finish this ever is this just gonna fade out to end the set and you thought they were coming back. and then back they, 2013. Oh, yeah, that was the second night of the three-night run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They ended the first set with a really kind of bizarre uh, split up in the melt there. Um, I was there in the porta potty during that action. I'm in the porta potty thinking, wow, I really fucked up. It's <laughs> not in the porta potty, but it sounds kind of cool and I really have to pee. But <laughs> this is a great version of the song. Um, There's like an ambient... There's just like an ambient bit in the, the version from last night where the keyboards kind of feels like shine on you crazy diamond. Yeah. Like Trey wants to drop into it. Doesn't happen. Yeah, I definitely got that. Um, yeah, I definitely got that and definitely felt like there was, there was just like a lot of random weird teases throughout the ambient jamming last night. But I think just overall, you know, the sense I got from that show was 
the band was really intentional and really deliberate. And that to me is all that I'm looking for. I don't care what songs they play. I don't care what the jamming style is like. I just want them to sound that focused and that determined that they did last night. And I think if they can do that, we're in for a really good tour ahead. I think that last that 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 second or that third night of the gorge is kind of our best indication of where things could go this year and be a really big step forward even from 2017. And speaking of things that are very good in a positive direction in which they should go and hopefully will go, let's listen to a portion of the Choctaw's Torture played by Fish on July 20th, 2018 at Gorge.
I hope that you guys enjoyed that really uplifting, soulful, rocking version of Choctaw's Torture there from July 20th, 2018 at the Gorge. So our first segment of music that we're going to focus on here are the D major road trips. That Choctaw's Torture Jam is in D major and really feels like you're driving down through kind of the Mississippi Delta or through the desert. The windows are open, hair is flying around, hands out the window, big old smile on your face, and it just feels like pure Americana music right there. So we're going to talk about a couple songs and a couple bands here that really mastered this in their own way. And oddly enough, both of these albums, both of these bands that we're going to talk about, we're talking about their most recent work here. So this uh, is equal parts, new albums, as well as our first segment. So I hope you guys enjoy this. The first uh, band that we're going to talk about is a band called Death Heaven. The song that we're going to play is Honeycomb off of their newest album, Ordinary Corrupt Human Love which came out just about 10 days ago as of recording. Uh, so Deaf Heaven, we were we discussed these guys in episode four on the MSG Carini. We were discussing songs that reminded you of death and dying. We played their song Luna off their 2015 record, New Bermuda. So this is a band that was formed in San Francisco in 2010. They are a five piece that straddles the line between black metal, shoegaze, and post rock. Their 2013 LP Sunbather was a really remarkable breakthrough and one that you could imagine at least five Pitchfork writers having in their top five of the decade. This was also, according to Metacritic, the best-reviewed album of 2013. Follow-up record, New Bermuda, as we talked about, really continued the band's stylistic goals of expanding the boundaries of metal. And their recently released record, Ordinary Corrupt Human Love, takes this idea even further, and at times it sounds like nothing anyone would ever expect from metal. What are your thoughts on this record, Dave? I thought when I first heard heard Honeycomb especially, especially the big D major portion that kicks in around four minutes, I thought to myself, why does Dev have been kind of sound like Humphreys McGee? (laughs) Because um, (laughs) it sort of sounds like an Humphreys jam in the sense that Humphreys, they always hint at metal. Certainly um, when Jake Sinegar can step on a distortion pedal, they get metal-like. The third version of metal is almost like a commentary on metal. Whereas uh, the past Death Heaven records being Sunbather and New Bermuda, I actually have not heard uh, their first album, Road to Judah, but I'm pretty familiar with the last two. It's, uh, well, certainly it has the elements of shoegaze and black metal that made those records appealing. This one, it just seems more of like a rock and roll album, which I like. Yeah. Like it's still daring, but almost the first song in particular, it kind of sounds like the Smashing Pumpkins playing the coda to uh, the Derek and the Dominoes, uh, the Derek and the Dominoes song, Layla, especially uh, the big like epic piano bit. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I've listened to this song, Honeycomb, a lot. I want to stay in the middle of the street and just like do guitar windmills because it's melodic in a way that a lot of dev heaven usually isn't. Totally agree with all that. And, um, you know, this record, so the album title comes from a 1951 Graham Greene novel, The End of the Affair. 
Um, and uh, the, the, the quote, the ordinary corrupt human love is something that's spoken by the narrator who's a character torn between love and hate throughout the book. And you kind of get that sense throughout this record. It's got some really dramatic moments, but it's also got some really warm and kind of welcoming rock moments. Um, this record overall, I would say, is much more subdued than anything that anyone would expect from the band. It's less overly thematic of a record as a previous two in the sense that their songs uh, modulate in ways that one simply didn't experience on past releases. Their, their last two records, New Bermuda and Sunbather, you kind of couldn't imagine skipping a track. And this sounds like you know individualized songs on a record rather than like one cohesive piece in a lot of ways. Um, Albeit 14 minute long yeah. songs. The songs aren't short. I mean, they're. Right, right. Um, another kind of uh, difference here. So, singer George Clark actually sings throughout the record rather than just shrieks. And uh, much of this album uh, emerged from the band's publicly stated battles with depression and addiction that came following um, uh, the release of New Bermuda. Um, in some cases, this album feels much more ordinary than their previous two records. And I think that's a good thing. You know, lyrically, this album is a little bit more about um, just kind of day-to-day struggles rather than really big thematic uh, kind of human uh, issues. Um, and in many ways, it's the sound of a band that's content and really comfortable in its own skin. You know, I come to Deaf Heaven from a very different background from where a lot of people, I think, do. This band receives a ton of criticism for the fact that they are black metal, but also toe the line of um, rock and even in some cases pop. And they've been very out in the open about their embracing of pop. Um, and they're handsome. And they're very good looking. They aren't supposed to look good. Um, I kind of come at them from the angle of Deaf Heaven is some of the harder music that I'm, I allow myself to really listen to. Um, so I don't necessarily get the kind of negative argument against them, um, but I definitely know from listening to this, they sound a lot more confident in their approach and kind of go for it in a way that um, they, they kind of shy away from that's and that, in their last two records. And that's why you get this kind of D major, really fun jam that we're going to play here from, uh, from, from Honeycomb. So the song that we're going to play here, it uh, contains kind of a section on the back end, like I said, that kind of legitimately sounds like Southern Rock at times. So um, kind of feels in a lot of cases like the Choctaw's Torture that we played at the top of the show here. So we're hoping that you guys enjoy Honeycomb here off of Deaf Heaven's Ordinary Corrupt Human Life.
So the band I'm going to talk about in terms of D Major Road Trippin' this is an album that came out last Friday. The band is called Wild Pink. The song is called Yoke in the Fur. It's the title track of the album Yoke in the Fur. Now, careful followers of our Twitter feed will note that we were certainly talking this record up when it came out last Friday. And actually, we first heard of these guys when we had um, our episode with the music critic author Stephen Hyden. Uh, it was a few months ago, and he said that this was one of his most anticipated albums of the year, and it came out just this past Friday. So songs two through six on this album, I think they would all appear to be in the key of D major. It's actually a little disorienting, but it's kind of great. It's almost like a uh, like 20-minute thematic D major suite of sorts, and it kind of finds exactly what you can ring out of that key signature. It's almost like all the songs kind of feel the same, except that the accents are different. And the front man of this band, John Ross, he uh, both vocally and in terms of his very specific Eye of Life lyrics, he kind of comes off a lot like Death Cab for Cutie's Ben Gibbard. And his band sounds more than a little bit like the 80s synthy Heartland rock that's all the rage these days. But yes, the war on drugs, drink, 1980s Springsteen and others. I've kind of taken to calling them Death Cab for Hornsby. <laughs> and the song, There is a Ledger, even kind of sounds like one headlight from the Wallflowers. And that song fucking owns. I don't care anything about the Wallflowers. It's a great song. I mean, there's really little question that uh, the guys from behind Beyond the Pond would like a record with the front man who's influenced by Tom Petty and Jackson Brown writing like 80s-inspired road rock gems in D major. The second half of the album gets a bit more sedate. There's actually evidence of a sequencer being used on the kind of treacly song, quote, Love is Better, as in Love is Better Than Anything in the World. Overall, it's an exceedingly well-written road trip album. It uses the key of D major to its advantage, and I'm looking forward to listening to it quite a bit more. Brian, I know uh, you've got some thoughts on this record. Yeah, I mean, I would say I would I would agree with everything you said about it thus far. Um, this is definitely one of my favorite kind of surprises of the year. Uh, talking with Steven about it a couple months ago, and then singles starting to trickle out, and then the album came out. And one thing that you'll notice immediately on this record that makes such a massive difference, I know you and I were texting about this the morning it came out, every one of these songs segues into each other. And uh, that fade aspect is just so thematic it it feels like you're listening to something that was just purposely put together in a really intentional way i love that aspect of it these guys seem to really understand kind of the subtleties of which they want to approach their instruments it's a very lush record it's a very warm record it's really um it's in line with uh you know what you and i are tend to be looking for in a lot of music nowadays at least from a rock standpoint and Definitely would say if any of you have spent five minutes listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you'll enjoy this record as well. Let's now let's listen to the title track off of Yoke in the Fur from Wild Pink. You had so much anger and now you're turning it around. To keep 
guys so taking a break midway through the episode if you thought we were finished talking about new albums you were wrong uh, we're going to talk about a couple new records that we've been listening to like we said at the top of the show we've been keeping up with btp assignments trying to listen to as much fish and as much new music as possible we've got a couple records i think that you guys are going to really enjoy here uh, first one I've got is one I've been meaning to talk about for a couple episodes now. This came out in early June, um, but just wasn't able to get around to it. This is uh, Owen Tricks Point Never's Age Of. So we discussed the work of Owen Tricks Point Never, otherwise known as OPN, uh, in episode 11, the MSG Tube and a song I heard the Ocean Sing episode from the Baker's Dozen last year. I equated uh, this work to the a song I heard the ocean sing from the Baker's Dozen. Uh, Owen Tricks Point Never is the stage name for Daniel Lopatin and uh, his DJ experimentations. I would argue there's literally no one making music as mind-altering as OPN these days. Um, he's really challenging. He is really riveting. Following his work is just a fascinating, fascinating event. He's constantly releasing new material. Uh, he did a really good soundtrack last year. He's got uh, this is his 10th record. He's just, you know, a very pro- prolific artist that you don't have to do put too much work into finding, but you're constantly mesmerized by the work that he does. Um, so Lopatin started in the Brooklyn noise scene and gained acclaim in 2010 for his excellent record, Returnal. But his next three albums, 2011's Replica, 2013's R Plus 7, and 2015's Garden of Delete, really set him apart and showcased the full scale of his abilities. Um, This record, Age Of, is equally his most shocking and accessible record yet. Um, In short, it's an absolutely gorgeous uh, statement or uh, an absolutely gorgeous statement album, uh, something that few people would ever say about his albums. Uh, The same structure that made OPN's work so compelling over the past 10 years is still here. Non-traditional rhythm structures, organs, and overt synths, really haunting breakdowns. But whereas his last record, Garden of Delete, was overly aggressive in its transitions, Age Of is oftentimes blissful when it changes from one part to another. 
Much of this is due to the fact that Lopatin collaborated with a lot of artists in the writing and recording of this record, such as James Blake, Pruyant, Ellie Kelsler, and Kelsey Liu. Um, so it definitely feels a little bit more collaborative and more pop-oriented, if you will, from what he's done in the past. In the end, this is still a known Tricks Point Never record. It commands your attention and will challenge you to follow Lopatin's rapidly moving mind. Trust me. It is all worth it. It is a fantastic album, and Lil Pretenders are really, really compelling artists. You Definitely did a soundtrack artist. recently too, right? What's up? He did a soundtrack recently. Yeah, he did the soundtrack for the movie Good Time, which is a really excellent uh, um, record that came out last year, 2017. Good movie too. Pulse-pounding, New York underworld type movie. So, all right, in terms of my new record... I'm going to talk about a band called Soft Science, and the album is called Maps. This is something I uh, found out about recently from listening to the Sound Opinions podcast with Greg Cott and Dira Goddess from the Buried Treasures episode, which is always an excellent listen. I love that when they go all Buried Treasures on us. And I think they, in turn, learned about it from... um, the New York-based magazine, The Big Takeover, largely written and edited by a guy named Jack Rabbit, who was a big fan of this band. They are a quartet from Sacramento, California, home to Joan Didion and Greta Gerwig and the Sacramento Kings, and now Soft Science. They are, um, so, they're a shoegaze band. Shoegaze and dream pop, and really... This is a band that does not reinvent the wheel. I mean, they kind of don't so much reinvent the wheel as take it and adhere to it very, very closely and very, very well. You will hear some strong echoes of My Bloody Valentine and Lush, some of the Charlatans UK, basically all the bands that um, I gravitate to like a moth to a flame. So I I kind of eat stuff up, eat stuff like this up like catnip. And while they're... Uh, they're derivative. I mean, they don't really break any new ground, but they just take the ground and they trot it really, really well. Like immediately from uh, the first song on this record, you can tell that it's kind of like there's almost like the synthesizer lines almost seemed like to directly quote stuff off of uh, my Bloody Valentine's seminal album, Loveless. My Bloody Valentine have a song called Soon. This band has a song called Sooner. Yeah, essentially with this band, anyone who likes shoegaze music, who likes dream pop, any of the uh, late 80s, early 90s bands I've talked about many times on this podcast, especially going way back to episode number two, where we detail the shoegaze genre, you should like this band. There isn't really very much about them online. Really, it's just their label page and their band camp page. I know this is their third record. But considering I really hadn't heard about them at all until about 10 days ago, they kind of tend to keep a pretty low profile. But yeah, if you want to hear some excellently executed shoegaze, I would certainly check out Soft Science. The album is called Maps. All right, guys. So um, segment two here. So the first uh, segment we talked about the D major road trip. Uh, associated with that, this jam, the Chalk Dust Torture, really felt like a 
kind of Southern glory moments. So we're going to talk about some of our favorite Southern bands right now, Southern rock bands. Uh, the first band that we're going to talk about, I'm going to feature a group I've been wanting to talk about here for a long time called Future Birds. The song that we're going to play is called Cereal Bowls off the album Baba Yaga. So Future Birds are a what's known as a cosmic country band from Athens, Georgia. They've been at it since 2008 and have three good to great records released in that time. The band is known for their live shows, which are filled with energy, guitar solos, and some decent exploration on their songs. Heavy feedback is expected with their sound, and you hear it throughout their album, which leads to the cosmic psychedelic country sound. To me, they sound like the kind of band I'd love to discover in a dive bar in the South, pound some lo local beers to, pants the joint with them, set break, and then head back into the bar to boogie to their brand of exploratory Southern rock. It just sounds like a fantastic night out. They've been known to play with Widespread Panic, The Heartless Bastards, Drive-By Truckers, Grace Potter, Blitz and Trapper, and they played two separate shows at Bonnaroo 2011. The record in question here, Baba Yaga, is their second uh, LP, and from 2013, it feels like a road record in the truest sense. These guys are a team of five songwriters, and the diversity of this album is shocking for its thematic origins. I got into them through their 2015 LP, Hotel Parties, an album which seemed to fuse the best of the last waltz with Zeppelin-esque stories of carousing and partying and destroying property. And I promise there is some depth to this record that really hooked me. This was my number seven LP of 2015. Uh, this record, 2013's Baba Yaga, came together over seven months as the band recorded while on the road, and at one time they had 30 songs written and recorded for the record. Upon completion, they still did not have a record company backing them, so they wondered if it, if it would ever be released and decided to just tour and play the songs live for fans to build support. As Fish fans, this is a story that should sound familiar. Also, as fans of, and we know you all are, one of the greatest albums of all time, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Uh, this record is very reminiscent of Tonight's the Night in the fact that you can hear all the botched notes and the vibe is explicitly after midnight. It's a really fun record. These guys are uh, kind of no-nonsense, tons of fun. I definitely encourage everyone to check out Future Birds. And listen to the song here, Cereal Bowls, off the album Baba Yaga. <laughs>
Southern Glory. I'm going to talk about a band that's been kind of making some circles in jam dan, jam bandum recently. Not really jam band. It's Blackberry Smoke. The song is called Living in the Song off of their 2015 album Holding All the Roses. So Blackberry Smoke is an Atlanta, Georgia-based capital S Southern rock band led by good old boy Charlie Starr and four other really hairy guys. So they're most often thought of as uh, kind of the new Leonard Skinner in terms of radio-friendly Southern rock songs largely played in major keys. But they sort of remind me even more of those uh, Southern rock bands that might have had one or two AOR radio hits in the 70s and 80s that always makes you say, oh, I love this song, but who the heck are these guys? I think uh, like The Outlaws, Black Oak, Arkansas, Molly Hatchet, who had that song Flirt with Disaster, that uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, but if you hear it, you know it. So Black uh, Berry Smoke recently put out an album called Find a Light, which is very good. However, my favorite of theirs remains 2015's Holding All the Roses, which was produced by their, quote, dream producer, Brendan O'Brien, we've talked about in the podcast before. So Living in the Song was the first single, maybe the best example of what they do. Major key rock and roll earworms that are disposable, but in a good way. They don't really do depth or profundity, just convertible top-down sunglass-wearing rock music. They don't really get political like the drive-by truckers do. They're not um, kind of like bluesy jack-of-all-trades like the Marcus King Band, but, you know, Southern Rock. And they play lots of live shows. They don't exactly jam, but they've kind of recently been getting lower rungs on jam band fests uh, like the recent Peach Festival and Mountain Jam, and uh, they play venues like Port Chester, New York's the Capitol Theater and whatnot. I know that they spent most of 2017 opening up for Government Mule, which, that's the right idea. And this is really more of a band to include on playlists. as They kind of get a little samey over the course of the full length, but heck, who doesn't love a good Southern Glory Rock playlist? You put one together, send it to me, I'll be more than happy to listen to it. So let's just listen to Living in the Song by Blackberry Smoke. Another day over and tomorrow in the bye-bye 
guys. Thank you so much for hanging with us on our 40th episode here where we covered the Chalk Dust Torture from July 20th, 2018 at the Gorge Amphitheater in George, Washington. So, in terms of the songs that we played here, segment one, we talked about D Major Road Trips, featured Deaf Heaven's Honeycomb off of Ordinary Corrupt Human Love, as well as Wild Pink's Yoke in the Fur off of Yoke in the Fur, both new 2018 albums we are very much into. Uh, in segment two, Southern Glory, I talked about Future Birds, Cereal Bowls off of Baba Yaga. And Dave talked about Blackberry Smokes, Living in the Smog off of Holding All the Roses. And our new album recommendations were Owen Trick's Point Never's Age Of, as well as Soft Science Maps. So just a reminder, you can always find us on social media, on Twitter, where we've uh, having a tendency to do a bunch of live tweeting during these shows. You can find us at at underscore beyond the pond, one word, Simplecast or Simplecast website, where you can find all of the past podcasts for desktop listening. It's beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. And on Spotify, we've got our big master playlist of all the songs that we featured in these 40 episodes. That's under Beyond the Pond podcast songs. We try to update it usually within a few hours of the episode going live. Also, check out the other podcasts in the Osiris Network at osirispod.com. That's O-S-I-R-I-S-pod.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. We read them. We swear to God. We read them and get excited and text each other and say, you care. That's cool. <laughs> totally. And uh, just really quick, um, we said this at the top, but we encourage you guys to keep checking out the Helping Friendly Podcast Quick Hits as they recount the, the shows uh, right in the, almost in the moment, day after, if you will, um, with some people who are at each show, some great stories about the shows and kind of what's happened throughout the tour, as well as follow hashtag couch report for the Osiris live couch reports that are coming this summer and play lure social at lure social. And uh, really quick, just from a publishing standpoint, you guys might have woken up this morning and been like, what the hell is going on? Why is there a beyond the pond on a Thursday? We are posting pretty much every 10 days here during summer tour. Our next episode will come out, um, not this upcoming Tuesday, but the next one. That is going to cover uh, the Bill Graham Forum uh, and Austin shows, I believe, from this summer tour. Let me just, yep, Bill Graham, the Forum, and Austin. That will be up the first week of August. Yes, I will be in Cape Cod when the episode is being recorded, just like last year. I apologize in advance if I come up sounding a bit tired on it. But that's okay. It's got to get done. So on that note, I hope that you have a fantastic summer tour going forward. I know I'm uh, certainly looking forward to following along. I'm going to be uh, Camden Night 2 and Curveball. Come say hi. I'll tell you what I'm wearing. And on that note, I'm Brian Brinkman along with David Goldstein. We encourage you guys to come back in about a week and a half. And we'll join hands, sing Kumbaya, and go beyond the world.